Welcome to Church on the Rock. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you would like to, uh, you can head over after the service and grab a little uh, card uh, to let us know that you're here. And if you do that, uh, they'll have a gift for you that comes from a ministry that we support overseas in India. That's the story behind that, but it's our gift to you. Uh, but if you are here for the first time this morning, uh, the God of the universe, your creator who knew you from the beginning of time, uh, has sent his spirit to speak to you this morning. And this morning, one of the ways that he's going to do that is through uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Dr. Edson Knapp. Would you guys welcome him to the stage? So you and I first talked a few weeks ago about uh, the passage that you're covering this morning. I'm excited that you're tackling it. I have to say, like, in the last... Uh, probably month. I've really enjoyed my time in Esther and Nehemiah. It's been fantastic. It, it has been. Um, I, it dawned on me like kind of a week ago that you needed someone to share this passage that I'm talking about whose life was really messed up. <laughs> That's right. And we found you. And you picked me. That's right. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you're on to us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm so thankful that you're sharing this morning. Let's come before the Lord together and Absolutely. pray for you as we jump in. God, I know that there, uh, really everyone here has at some point in their own lives um, had to rebuild um, after uh, some kind of unfortunate circumstance, some kind of failure. And those who have, we know, God, that that's where we uh, encounter your grace. And I pray this morning, uh, as Edson leads us uh, into your word again, as we look at your people rebuilding, God, that you would give us insight and wisdom, uh, give us a new understanding, a deeper understanding of your grace and how you work in our lives through uh, our own failures. Give us uh, hearts to receive from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, good morning. Happy Sunday. Thank you. If I get choked up, I've got some water. Um, so I just have to start with a little story. This, this one's for free, and then we'll get into the actual message. But I don't know about the rest of the guys in the room. I feel just a little intimidated by Aaron's marriage, especially when he talks about it from the stage. Like, the worst problem he has to deal with is where he puts the eggshells. <laughs> I, I don't know if y'all have picked up on that. So a little problem happened in my relationship last night. Um, I have this dessert that I like to make, Bananas Foster, and it's like a really cool thing. And occasionally I try to get creative in the kitchen, and I had this fantastic idea last night, which is to take the waffle iron and make waffles banana foster. So I just take the bananas and cook them in the waffle iron instead of in just a normal frying pan. I was so excited. And I didn't tell anybody what I was doing because there was some jeopardy, you know, going on, potential jeopardy. But I, the kids kind of got onto the idea of what I was doing because they were hanging out, and Renda had gone upstairs, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so much fun, it's gonna be so good, it's gonna be so great. And so I put the bananas in the waffle iron after I sprayed it down to make sure nothing would stick, and there was this satisfying hiss, and the steam came out of the waffle iron, and it smelled wonderful. The vanilla and the banana, and woohoo! 
So the alarm went off and I opened the thing up and there is just mashed, stuck goo filling my waffle iron. And the kids rushed over and Ewab goes, oh dad, you are so lucky mom is not here. <laughs> so that was my night last night. Um, we're going to talk this morning about um, this, one of the stories in which Ezra was directly involved, although he wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. This is kind of his, his um, point on the stage uh, in the stories. And it's, as Aaron alluded to, it's a little bit of a difficult story, trying to understand what they were doing, how they were thinking through this. Um, and is so often the case with Scripture, we get the story and we're sort of left a little bit to try and figure out the moral or the point of it. Um, and so we're going to go through that together and talk about it, uh, kind of unpack it a little bit. Um, in order to do that, I will bring in a bunch of other Scriptures. Um, so hopefully you can kind of come along with me and we can take all of Scripture together and understand um, how to deal with and understand the messes in our lives, um, how to fix the times of disappointment, how to deal with the what-ifs, um, and uh, start to understand how we put our life back together when we've got a big mess. Um, one of the first messes that I encountered in my life, my parents were missionaries, most of y'all probably know that. Um, we lived in, uh, in Tanzania on a demonstration farm out in the middle of nowhere. Um, when I was seven years old, uh, it was December, and my mom was having this sort of chronic illness thing nobody could figure out, um, and it just seemed to sort of steadily get worse. And I remember one Sunday, Dad went out to preach, and Mom couldn't go with him because she was too sick. And so I stayed home with her. Um, and of course, to me, all I can remember is just she wasn't normal. She wasn't making breakfast. She wasn't doing anything. She was just sitting in a chair. Um, and about, oh, I don't know, midday, she said to me, would you just come and sit with me? Um, I can't breathe very well. I can't lay down. So if you just sit with me and um, be here by me, I would appreciate it. So I sat by her chair. Dad came home in the afternoon and took one look at her and realized we had to do something. Um, so we bundled up everything into the car um, and started the four-hour drive to um, a missionary hospital, actually the hospital where I was born. And the drive was so difficult because every bump hurt. And of course, we lived in a place where there were no roads that didn't have bumps. So it was just, it was a long, difficult trip. We got to the hospital. The doctors saw her. Um, I remember they took this gigantic needle. It seemed like it was longer than my entire body and put it into her and pulled out this pink fluid. Um, and that evening, the doctors came to uh, where we were at. We were actually staying in a missionary's home to care for her. Um, the doctors came and talked to my dad, and I was not allowed on the conversation, but I was next door and the walls were thin, so I kind of heard what they were talking about. Um, and they told my dad, we don't know what's wrong um, with Evelyn, my mom. It's pretty serious. We don't know if it's cancer. We don't know if it's some infection we don't know how to deal with, but you need to go to another country to a real hospital. Um, and so they called, uh, and at that time, the landlines were the only thing that was available. Um, 
and they were usually down. And at that time when they called, it just happened that they were able to get through to the Missionary Aviation Fellowship and ask them to come the next day, Christmas Eve, to fly us to Kenya. Um, and they agreed, they showed up, we got on the plane, a uh, little Cessna, and I sat in the back with my mom. The pilot had to fly low so that she could have enough oxygen to breathe. Um, and I remember every time there was a little bump, um, she would just grimace in pain. And I just, you know, I had no idea um, what was going to happen. Um, we got to uh, Kenya, to Nairobi, there was this sort of... Um, Land Rover ambulance thing that met us there and took us to the hospital, and it was evening. And this hospital, um, this doctor came in, very nice, and she poked and prodded and muttered under her breath, and, and of course I had no idea what any of it meant. And we were dispatched to a room, and I sat on the floor next to my mom, sort of wondering what was gonna happen. Um, and the next day was Christmas. Um, and that was the first time in my life, anyway, that I had really encountered a mess. Um, we come across these messes um, with the following, um, and that is when we start to ask the what-if questions. What if this hadn't happened? What if I hadn't married this person? What if my mom hadn't died or my brother hadn't died? What if, and we have, there's a long list, all of us who've lived for a while have those lists, uh, those questions that we ask. I wonder what would have happened if such and such. Um, so Ezra is kind of dealing with the same situation. Um, and Aaron set the stage for us beautifully last week with kind of the whole history of how we got to where we're at. Um, Ezra's come back from Babylon and he is trying to establish a revival, a real sense of, of walking after God and reestablishing Israel. Um, and so he starts gathering all the elders, gathering the people, and, and reading Scripture together. And in that process, they uncover a big mess. Um, and we just have to remember this is a small remnant of people. Um, they're excited to be back, but they're also struggling because there's not very many of them, and they're trying to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. Um, Ezra 9.4 then everyone trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Now, what's happening with this, this being appalled, this, um, they're being upset, is that they've suddenly realized as they're going through Scripture that they're not supposed to be marrying outside of their own, uh, their own tribe, outside of the Israelites. And they realize that that's what they've been doing. Um, in fact, that when they came back into this land, their single men started marrying women that were outside of the tribe, Canaanites and Hittites and a bunch of other uh, different nations that were left sort of there. Um, and they've completely messed up this law, this directive that they've, that they've found in Scripture. And so Ezra is set back because he sort of felt like everyone was excited and, and ready to walk after the Lord, and now they suddenly realize that one of the big things that's important to set them apart, they've already messed up. Um, they've already had a disaster. Uh, verse 14 in chapter 9, shall we break your commandments again 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? And those words, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? Um, I feel like I can really relate to that sentence because there have definitely been times in my life when I felt like it was so messed up, I had done so many things that weren't going to work out, that there just wasn't any point in God working with me anymore. Like, why would God spend time with me or trying to help me or doing things with me? Because I've messed up so much that he's just going to be angry with me until I die. Um, and that's kind of how they felt. They were really concerned that, that they were going to struggle with this, and this was, this was a big issue for them. Then in chapter 10, we talk a little bit about their solution. Um, Ezra in chapter 10, verse 11 says, now then make confession to the Lord. So they all together said to the Lord, we've, what we've done is wrong. Um, and then their solution, it's interesting, the scripture does not tell us that God told them to do this. Um, it's just kind of what they decided to do. In verse 13, they said, uh, but the people are many and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. So if you can just imagine a bunch of guys all standing around in the rain, thinking about divorcing their wives, deciding that that's the right thing to do in order to solve this problem that they're dealing with, and it's cold and it's miserable, and this is something that they just can't solve by saying we're sorry. Um, and that's the situation that we find them. And is, as is typical for all three stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's three together. This one is the middle story. The scripture just kind of leaves it like that. And we're sort of left thinking, what? <laughs> What's going on? What's supposed to happen? What's the right thing to do? Um, and so we're going to talk about that um, to kind of help... Um, you all understand where I'm coming from. I wanted to share a little bit about my story. Um, my former wife, Renda's my second wife, um, and I were going along fairly well, I thought. Um, I got accepted to medical school after a long series of stories that I'd love to share sometime. And um, I was going into my third year of medical school super excited, um, getting to go into the hospital for the first time and take care of patients, and I had no idea what I was doing, um, as most people do at that stage in their life. And I came home one day, and lightning had struck our neighborhood. And um, I actually saw it strike as I was driving into the neighborhood. And when I got home, I went to the computer to do an assignment, and when I turned it on, um, this document said it hadn't printed what I like to finish printing it. And what had actually happened was it had printed, but the computer gotten scrambled by the lightning strike and thought it had not printed it. Very strange. But when I printed it out, it was a letter from my wife to her lover. And it was clear that this had been a long going thing. Um, and I was just completely devastated. Um, just I didn't even really know for a moment how to breathe. 
what to do. Um, so that was sort of the impact that hit me. Um, I thought my life was going well, and we were going to church, and I thought I had two kids, I had it all together, I was going to be a doctor someday, and instead I encountered that. Um, went over to a friend's house, tried all the things one's supposed to do in those situations, counseling, all that kind of thing. Um, but in a very short period of time, I found myself out of my house with no kids, lost my car, moved in with my parents who had an 11.30 p.m. curfew, <laughs> 30 years old in medical school with a curfew. Um, and when I woke up about three months later, I said to myself, this is a mess. There's no, how, what am I supposed to do? How can I solve any of this? Um, and as we all know from marriages, there's no innocence on either side. Um, there's things you regret, things you look back and wish you'd done differently. Um, I had a whole list of what ifs. What if I had done that differently? Um, so that was, in my life, one of the difficult things that I've gone through. Um, and so I want to talk about some of the things that God did for me as I walked through that time and came out of that time. Um, so what I'm sharing with you are real things that helped me, um, not just um, cute scriptures or cute ideas, but things that, I, that really meant something to me as I walked out of that time. Um, we have some chains that kind of bind us when things like this happen to us. Um, there are um, things that the, the disaster is so great that we have trouble letting go of it and also trouble solving it. So one of them is our past. We get so caught by what's occurred that we have great difficulty in going forward. Um, another one is our guilt. There's so many things that we feel guilty about that we struggle with. Um, and then the third thing is just everything's gone haywire and nothing connects. It's all a big mess and it doesn't really seem to matter what you do. You can't fix it. Um, so these are just some things that helped me uh, deal with all of those. Um, the past, I can't forget my past. Uh, it occurred to me at some point that if I could walk after God, that he could redeem my past. The past has happened, it's unchangeable, um, and yet there's some way that God is able to allow you to start to see relief and freedom and his hand in your past. Um, I like to think about it a little bit like this. You go through a time like that and all this stuff happens, and then as you start to walk out of it, as you look back, you start to realize that God's hand was there the whole time, even though you were going through such a difficult thing. Um, and for example, the timing of everything that happened, uh, the only way I found out what happened was because lightning struck my neighborhood, which no one could predict or plan on, and yet because of that timing, there were so many other things that happened that God had a hand in, and I recognized that that was something from him, 
that that was a, a timing from him. Um, and so we are able to start to see that God can redeem our past. God can, God can heal us from our past. This verse from Jeremiah 3.22, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. And for me, I felt like I was in a time of faithlessness, and that verse told me that God could heal that. Um, Renda puts it this way, someone is watching out for you always. God is on your side, and he is there with you, and he's got plans even when it's all messed up like that. I want to spend a little bit of time on the concept of guilt. Um, I don't know about you all, but I struggle with guilt. Um, and I always have this idea, um, just maybe a part of my personality, that at some point, God is going to say, okay, I've taught you all this stuff, you know all this stuff from the Bible, you've been in church your whole life, and you don't have it all together yet, so I'm done with you. That's kind of how I feel. I always have this sort of sense of, of guilt, like... I'm just waiting for the other hammer to fall. Um, and so I have put together a list of reasons why God doesn't do that. Um, and I come back to this list when, I, when I'm struggling. Number one, his love never ends. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Number two, salvation isn't based on us. I, I don't know about you all, but pretty often I start to get the idea that if I will work a little bit harder and do a little bit more, I will, I'll get that salvation that, I, that I'm trying to pursue. Um, and I'm always, I know, I know that that's wrong in my head, but I struggle with it emotionally. Titus 3.5 he saved us, not because of works done by us, not because of the stuff that we do in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You know, as we walk through our life and we see God's relationship with us, the longer I walk, the more I can start to trust this. But it takes repeated times where God reminds me, it's not about you, Edson, I did this because I have mercy, I am mercy, and I love you. It's about God, not about me. Another reason, he knows our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, we're reminded by Scripture that our life is a little bit like a flower. It blooms, it fades, and it's gone. Or we're like a mist. It comes and it blows away, and it just is a short thing. Um, and God knows who we are. He knows our weaknesses. I loved how Aaron pointed out last Sunday that in our weaknesses is how he is made strong. Um, and Paul boasting in his weaknesses, not in his strengths. Jesus knows that we're human because he was. Uh, he knows what that's like. He knows what it means to get a splinter. He knows what it means to have a bad day. Um, he understands where we are at and who we are in some ways better than we do ourselves. 
Um, he doesn't want to destroy us. We don't have a father that wants to um, punish us. Um, I think we get confused about that sometimes. Psalms 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. He reminds me, not infrequently, that when I start to doubt and struggle and think that he's going to punish me and that I'm guilty and that I need to have figured it all out by now, he reminds me that at some level I am diminishing what he did on the cross. And he reminds me that when I was a little kid and I accepted Christ as my Savior um, and received his forgiveness, that that forgiveness was not for that moment only, but for my entire life. And that he already knew everything that I was going to struggle with. He already knew all the bad things I was going to do. He already understood that my marriage was going to fall apart. And yet, he died for me and gave his blood for me. And when I struggle with doubt and I deal with that, he reminds me that he's paid for it and that he did it by choice and that he's happy with me. I just need to walk after him. And then one other point here, um, and this is just a reminder of how much he loves us. He loves his children, 1 John 2.12. I am writing this to you, little children, referring to us, his little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he says, just come to me. We'll walk together. We'll figure it out. All he wants is a relationship with us. He wants us to learn to walk with him, to start to choose him over everything else. Come to me, little children. Um, how do you unravel the mess? That's kind of the next chain you have to deal with. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those things here in just a second, but um, I wanted to bring in this verse because it's such an important verse for all of us. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Um, so many times in my life I have said, there's, there's no way this is going to get solved. It just, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to work out. Um, I'm not going to be able to fix this one, Edson. For example, um, before I started going to medical school, I um, ended up leaving seminary, which is another story, in the middle of seminary. Um, I was a seminary dropout <laughs> and um, went to work for a psychiatrist as his research assistant. And I remember thinking, is this all you're going to do with me, God? Is this my life to do uh, psychiatric research. It was fine. It was, you know, a good job and I needed a job, but I had all these ideas of the things I was going to do. I was going to be a doctor and that had not worked out and I was going to be a pastor and I had flunked out of seminary. And so it just seemed like I, 
All those things that I had planned for were just kind of gone. Um, and I remember asking God, what, is this, is this it? Is this your plan? Not one that I like, but it'll work if that's how you want it to be. And he said to me, you know, I'm God and I see the way out, even if you don't. And this verse reminds us of that. It reminds us that he sees the way out even when we don't. So let's talk a little bit about sorting out the consequences. How do we deal with this gigantic mess when we're, when we're struggling, when we have a mess in front of us? When we're Ezra and all these marriages have happened that are not supposed to happen, or when we have our own what-ifs, our own struggles in our life. Um, the first one, and I, I, like, I love this verse, this is one of my, one of my happy verses. Um, there are times in life, um, just in day-to-day, and also when we have a disaster that happens, when we just start to feel drained. You know that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you're supposed to have gotten enough rest overnight and reset and you wake up and you're like, oh, that did not help. And all the stressors come back on you and you just feel completely wiped out. So this is a verse that helps me on those mornings. John 15, 10, and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now let me just kind of unpack that a little bit. So on those mornings when I feel wiped out and discouraged and things aren't going well, I'm reminded by this verse that he doesn't ask me to feel great. He doesn't ask me to solve all the problems in my life. He just asked me to be obedient that day and just try and walk after him that day. And he gives us a promise with that request. And that promise is that the joy that Jesus has will be in our life that day. And to me, that is an amazing thing. Um, And I can say that there is some truth to the verse. There is some reality behind it. Um, that I have walked through the day after finding out my marriage was falling apart and I have seen God's joy in little pieces on that day. Doesn't mean that I wasn't upset, destroyed, emotionally, all those kinds of things, but he was there with me. The other thing is obedience starts to simplify the mess. When we start to walk his way, the mess starts to sort itself out. Another thing that's important is wisdom. Um, And of course, we can pray for wisdom. The scripture tells us to do that. Um, And we can seek counsel. I want to talk about a couple of those things. Um, One of the things that helps us when we have a big mess on our hands is talking to other people who have walked through maybe a similar thing or who have some wise counsel. I'll just give you an example. When, when we were, um, uh, when my parents were missionaries, we had an issue, which is the tribe that we were working with was a tribe that had polygamy. So many of the men that we worked with had three or four wives. As a matter of fact, the rule was in that culture, um, once you got three wives, you no longer had to work on your farm. You just let the women do the farm work. So there was high motivation to have a lot of wives. Uh, 
<laughs> I hear the men laughing and the women frowning. Um, <laughs> so um, as um, the church work really started growing, um, we had an enormous revival that occurred uh, during my, the second half of my parents' ministry. We started having a lot of men come and become Christians um, and join the church who had many wives. Um, the chief of the tribe had 102 wives. So you can kind of see uh, that was a part of their culture. It was important to them. And we had to try and figure out what to do. And so my dad asked other missionaries who were older than him, how do you deal with this problem? And they said, it's, we have one solution that seems to have worked well in this kind of situation. And that is you ask them to build houses for their wives that are on the edge of their property and refer to them as a sister going forward um, and just keep one wife in the main home and say, those are my sisters and this is my wife. Now, the reason why you couldn't just have a man divorce his wives in that culture was because there's no way, in the culture that I grew up in, there's no way for a woman to have any source of income. They can't get a job, they can't own property. Um, that's changing now, but when I was a kid, that's how it was. And so if you divorced a woman, that meant she was forced into prostitution. There was really no other way for her to survive. So we didn't feel like that was appropriate, um, but we also had this issue where we really wanted a husband to have one wife. And that was the way other missionaries had solved it. So my dad sought counsel um, and found a solution that seemed to work in that culture. Um, we are all hesitant to get counsel. Um, for example, marital counseling, especially for guys, is like, eh, yeah, I'm not, not doing that. That's, I, I can figure this out on my own. Um, and we forget that the elite athletes that we watch on TV, they all have coaches. They pick the best coach because they want to be the best athlete. Um, CEOs that run gigantic companies, Fortune 500 companies, they all have coaches that help them, that teach them, that train them, that advise them. Um, and so this idea that we just got to get through this all on our own is an unwise idea. God tells us to seek counsel, Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Another one that I wanted to share is what I call simple trust. Um, there's this uh, word in Scripture called dabak, which means to cling. Um, it's found in, in Psalms. And it's a word picture of a child who is threatened by an angry dog that's barking and looks like it's going to attack the child. And the child runs and wraps its arms around its parent, mom or dad, um, and clings, dabak clings to their parent for protection, for um, uh, consolation, for all of those things. Um, and that is a picture that we're given to help us understand how we are to cling onto God, how important God is to us. Um, and that trust, that recognition that He is the one that protects us, He is the one that keeps us safe, um, is uh, repeated in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. And God tells us 
when he went to the trouble of dying for us, that it wasn't just a plan for us to be saved and then just kind of leave us, but rather he has a plan for every day of our life, and he has a direction for us. And when I am going through a time when I've walked away from God, he's always calling me back. He's always inviting me back. He's always reaching for me. He's always there telling me, come home, come back. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. And his plan is to work out my salvation with me, to help me, uh, to be with me. So I want to take you back to the story I started with, uh, the story of my mom. Unbeknownst to me, my um, dad had driven all night the night before we left in the airplane uh, to get the Christmas presents for me because my mom wanted to be sure that on Christmas morning in the hospital that I would have a Christmas present. Um, and I didn't know that. And so um, Dad and I had stayed in a little uh, apartment in town near the hospital. And on Christmas morning, we got up and went in to be with Mom. And um, as I, we sat there and Dad did a little Christmas morning ceremony, we always read uh, the Christmas story together. He read the Christmas story to us. And then he had a little suitcase with him, and he pulled out of the suitcase my Christmas present. Now, in order to understand Christmas presents for us at that time, uh, you have to remember that we spent four years in Tanzania and one year in the States. And so my parents would have to buy all four years of Christmas presents when they were in the States because there was nothing available in Tanzania. So they actually had to plan four years of clothes, four years of Christmas presents, birthday presents, and all that had to be packed and shipped for us. So that Christmas present being there that day was, they had put a lot into that being there. So I sat there on that floor uh, of that little hospital room and opened up a big yellow Tonka truck. I will never forget that Tonka truck. Um, and I went outside and drove it all around the hospital grounds and it was a wonderful thing. What I didn't know was after I left, my mom and dad started praying. And my mom prayed, and I'll try not to break down when I recount this. My mom prayed that God would spare her life so that she could be there to raise me. That's a good mom prayer uh, for someone that's being faced with death. Um, and God answered the prayer. Uh, the medicine was the right medicine. She had an, what's called an amoebic abscess of the liver, um, and it was the right medicine for her, and she gradually got better. But I want to tell you the rest of the story, and I'd like to invite the worship team up. Um, I want to tell you the rest of the story, because the rest of the story is what God does with our messes. It's an amazing story to me. So as mom was getting better after about two weeks and getting ready to be discharged, her doctor said to her, um, you're doing well, I want you to continue with this medicine, uh, but I have to give you a rule that I want you to follow to keep this from coming back. And that is, I don't want you to drive on any bumpy roads for a year. Well, that was kind of like saying, you're under house arrest for a year to my mom because there was no way she could travel with that rule in mind. And so they talked about it and the doctor said, this is really important. Your liver's been damaged, there's some issues, and that's not gonna heal if you jar everything around on a continual basis. You really need to just take it easy. So that's what she had to do. 
And typical of my mom, first Sunday morning after we got home, um, she grabbed my hand and we walked, since she couldn't drive, we walked to the little local church um, and we started attending that church and she decided that was going to be her ministry since she couldn't travel with my dad every Sunday to all the churches. Well, it turned out as she was sitting there, she noticed that the kids, I was included in that, um, didn't really have anything for us to do. Um, it wasn't something they had noticed in their ministry because they were so busy with new believers and new churches that were growing. But now that she was just attending one place, she was like, you know, there's nothing for my son to do or any of these other kids to do. So she thought, I'll, I'll start doing something with them. So we went over Sunday afternoon to have a little youth time. And she's like, okay, open up your Bibles too. And nobody had a Bible, of course. Um, so she thought, you know, I have a great idea. I will go ahead and um, have them memorize scripture and I'll give them a Bible and then I'll start teaching them how to use the Bible. So she typed up 10 pages of verses, a pretty substantial amount. Um, and if we memorized all 10 pages, we would get a Bible. And of course, as the missionary's kid, I had to start working on memorizing 10 pages of Swahili verses, um, which I eventually finished a couple years later. The next Sunday, one of the kids had already memorized the entire thing. Unfortunately, she had a Bible with her. So then she started teaching us to do sword drills where we could look up scriptures really fast. And she started this whole program. And um, within six months, we had so many kids that were involved and so many Bibles handed out that other pastors heard about it and were like, well, can you do that in our church? And she said, I can't do that in your church. I can't come there. And so she picked one of the leaders in our youth group and they went out and started the program in other churches and it spread through our whole district, which eventually had 400 churches. The amazing thing is that that program then spread through the whole country, all of the churches in Tanzania that were in the program that my parents were in. And now if you visit Tanzania, the pastors that you talk to went through that program. Those people all became pastors. That's where they all came from. And looking back, you can see the woven tapestry of God taking my mom's illness and turning it into the work of God for the entire country. And I think that's a miracle. And he can do that in our lives. There's a plan for each little step that we have to walk through. You know, we serve a risen Savior. He's alive. He's active in our life. I love this verse from Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. There's so many things that we can accomplish because my Redeemer lives. Because my Redeemer lives, my chains are broken. Because my Redeemer lives, my fears can actually become faith. Because my Redeemer lives, my shame can become a ministry. Because my Redeemer lives, my weakness can become a strength. Because my Redeemer lives, my pride can become humility. Because my Redeemer lives, my bitterness becomes love. My wretchedness becomes godliness. My past becomes His. 
and my present becomes free. Thank you all. Thank you, Edson. So we're going to go into worship. There's a few ways you can uh, respond. Uh, first off is just uh, singing out to Jesus, celebrating the gospel. Uh, another way, if you want to, you can respond in worship through giving. There's receptacles around. Um, and then at any point during worship, uh, you can take uh, communion. Um, and feel free to do that in response to worship. There's some at the front and some at the back there. Um, for prayer, uh, the National Day of Prayer was uh, on uh, Thursday. So we're going to have some time of prayer here in a little bit. Uh, and at the end of the service, we'll have prayer um, available for you. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand with me? Uh, and we're going to worship and respond to the Lord. <clears throat> I know that many of you have already agreed in your own minds that God's grace is sufficient for someone else's circumstances. And like Edson said, it takes such a training of the heart such a growth in faith to believe at the very core of who I am that God will meet me right where I'm at. And yet that's his promise. If you're not walking with the Lord today, that's his promise to you. He will meet you right now, right where you're at. His grace is sufficient. Amen. 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 A couple of quick reminders. Uh, senior high is done. So if you're in senior high, do not come to my house tonight. House churches are, I think, done. So if you are part of a house church, don't do that tonight. <laughs> if you're in junior high, uh, they have their last meeting this evening. Uh, so if you're in junior high, show up over at our church office tonight. I believe they have a, like an end of the year party on Friday. Uh, so look for details on that. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the month. Uh, on the first Sunday of the month, we ask some of our elders to be available for prayer in obedience to the scriptures. So if you would like to receive prayer, uh, a couple of them will stay put as we close our service. They would love to pray with you here in the next few minutes. God bless you. God keep you. May his grace be upon you. We officially end at 1230. So if you can stick around, help us pick up. It's a huge blessing to our team. You're dismissed.